December the 17th of 1903, the Wright brothers were able to, in the morning of that day, conduct four successful flights uh, of their aircraft, uh, the longest being for 59 seconds. And uh, very exuberantly and excitedly, they, they sent a telegram that afternoon to their father, Bishop Milton Wright, in Dayton, Ohio. And the telegram said this, successful four flights Thursday morning, all against 21 mile per hour wind, started from level with engine power alone. Average speed through air, 31 miles, longest 59 seconds. Informed press, home Christmas, Orville Wright. Of course, their father was very excited, so Bishop Wright took that telegraph right down to the, the Dayton Journal Herald columnist, the local paper, gave it to them so that they could report as, as was requested, and the next morning the headline read this, the Wright brothers are coming home. He kind of missed the point. That is touted as the greatest failure in journalism history. Somebody who had the opportunity, others desired to break that news and wanted to, to write that report, but the Wright brothers wanted it to come out of Dayton, Ohio, their hometown, and so they decided to give that to the local newspaper, and, and the local newspaper botched it completely missed the point. They didn't capture the point of the telegram. Sometimes that happens to us, doesn't it? We miss the point. I tell you that story this morning because we're in a study of 1 Peter, and if you want to turn there with me, I would welcome you to do that, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're in a passage of Scripture this morning that, that lends itself to doing something like that. It lends itself to just a cursory reading, causing us to get sidetracked and miss the point of the passage. And so I, I want us to be careful today as we study what's a very difficult text together. If we weren't committed to an expositional presentation of the scriptures, we'd skip this passage. We'd just move on to something else. But we are committed to an expositional presentation of the Bible, which that means is just we're going to walk through the Bible verse by verse. We're going to take everything that God has said uh, and, and consider it and, and, and seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. And, and certainly this is a, a passage that's difficult. It's a passage that we could miss the point in. And so we want to be careful today. God has some amazingly important things to say in and, and our worship time. Thank you, Rex and team, for leading us, have led us right into uh, the text that we're going to talk about today, because we're going to talk about the victory that is found through suffering in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our victory, amen? amen. He, he won the victory. He has, he has sealed it. It is finished. And all we need do is but live in it. Regardless of the circumstances and the situations of life, regardless of what the things right in front of me might say, I have the word of God. I'm not going to trust my emotions or my circumstances. I'm going to trust God's word and what he has said. And Christ has certainly won the victory. And so as we read this text today, as we study this text today, 
don't miss the point. The point is, there is victory in Christ. It is finished. And that victory is our victory. Because we have entered into Christ. All right. Let's read it. You'll see what I mean. Pick it up in verse number 18 of chapter 3. For Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the saints in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Father, add your blessing to the reading of your word and give us insight today, I pray, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a lot going on in those verses, isn't there? There's some, there's some places to stump your toe. Uh, it could be difficult. Let's, let's endeavor to understand it together through the power of the Holy Spirit as he teaches us today. We don't want to get caught up in the, in the difficulty of it. We want to see the clarity of the point of it. And, and, and the clarity of the point of it is, as Peter has been talking about, uh, we started last week talking about suffering, and, and we've seen how that Peter, through his life, has gone through some trials. He's He's experienced some stuff, and because of the stuff that he's experienced, he's now here at the end of his life, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He writes this handbook on humility. Peter the Proud writes a handbook on humility, largely because he's gone through suffering, and he's found victory in the midst of suffering, so much so that he will even instruct us that we should glory in suffering. That, that, that seems like something that's so foreign to our concept, right? How is it that we can glory in suffering? We can glory in suffering because we know when we suffer for righteousness' sake, it always leads to victory. Amen. It always leads to victory. That is an absolute principle of God, and that's the example of the person of Jesus Christ. Last week we said there's confidence that we have. We have confidence in Christ. I can face any situation with absolute and complete confidence because of who I am in Jesus Christ. I can face every situation, all suffering and difficulties and trials that come in my life, knowing that when I suffer for righteousness' sake, there is victory on the other side. There is always victory as a result of suffering when I suffer for righteousness' sake. Christianity thrives in times of suffering. That's true. In the places where, where there is oppression, some of the things we've talked about this morning, where there is oppression and, and, and there's an, an effort to, to stamp out Christianity, what ultimately happens is Christianity will thrive in that environment. Because it thrives in times of suffering. There's, there's always victory when we suffer for righteousness' sake. Jesus Christ's suffering led to victory. And Paul, Peter, excuse me, is using him this morning as an example for us. We can look to him and see how he suffered for righteousness' sake and it led to victory. Now, 
There's several things I want us to see about his suffering in verse number 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now, several things. The first thing I want you to see is Christ's suffering was once for all, right? He, the first phrase there, for Christ also hath suffered for sins. Christ fulfilled this Old Testament system of sacrifices because he is the perfect sacrifice. Remember how John the Baptist introduced him? Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. That Jewish crowd understood that, right? They knew what he was talking about. They had seen for thousands of years lambs sacrificed and, and, and killed for the sake of putting away sin. Now he's identifying Christ as the one who would die once for sin. There is no continuing sacrifice, right? Christ died once for sin. It was once for all. He conquered sin and death. Romans says it like this, the Apostle Paul, for in that he died, he died unto sin once but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. His sacrifice was perfect. It's complete. Now, you can choose to accept that, or you can choose to reject that. That's a decision that each person has to make, but it doesn't change the fact. The fact is, Christ died for sins. It doesn't negate the power of his sacrifice. In the Old Testament, that, that Old Testament high priest would go every year on the Day of Atonement. He would go into the Holy of Holies, the temple. He would go into that, that very sacred place and he would bring first blood for himself and then he would exit and go back to the brazen altar and he would bring blood for the people and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And when he went into that Holy of Holies, they tied a rope around his ankle. They put bells around the bottom of his garment and the people would wait outside to hear, after the, the, the sprinkling of the blood, to hear the, the, the bells to, to ring so that they could know that the, the sacrifice had been accepted. And when they knew that it was accepted, there was this outburst, this jubilant celebration on the Day of Atonement. God has accepted the sacrifice. Our sins are rolled forward, and they would celebrate that. Hear me today. Our sins have been dealt with through the blood of Jesus Christ. Once and for all, he went into the, he didn't go into that temple on earth. He went into the real temple, the temple that God fashioned. He's into the third heaven in the presence of Almighty God on the mercy seat. He took his own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats and calves, and he sprinkled it upon that mercy seat, and he said, it's finished. It's over. It's done. We're not waiting to find out if it's been accepted. It's been accepted. He is the propitiation He's the satisfaction of the requirement of God to pay for our sins. Hallelujah. There's no system of sacrifices that's necessary. Hebrews says, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest standeth daily ministering, often, off, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He's talking about that Old Testament sacrifice. It, it rolled sins forward, but it could never take sins away. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting to his enemies to be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's your Christ. That's what Jesus Christ has done for you. His sacrifice was once for all. It was substitutionary. Notice the next phrase says, the just for the unjust. You see, Jesus Christ suffered in our place. He took my sin upon himself. He had no sin of his own, but he died as if he did. He died in my place. He died for my sin. The just, 
Christ for the unjust, Joe. He died in my place. He died in your place. He died for the sins of the whole world, 1 John says. Right? He's the propitiation not for my sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, you have a choice in that. You can choose to accept that sacrifice or reject that sacrifice. You can choose to say, I want you to apply that to my life, or I don't want you to apply that to my life. It's a personal decision, but it doesn't change the fact that he died in our place. It's a substitutionary death. Again, Isaiah chapter three, or 53 excuse me, says this, verse number four. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God put the iniquity of us all. When Christ is in the garden of Gethsemane and his, his sweat becomes his great drops of blood and he's agonizing before his father, the issue isn't the physical suffering of the cross, as, although it was horrific. The issue is he's about to take on the sins of all of mankind. Paul said it like this in Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Christ has done for us. His suffering was substitutionary. His suffering reconciled us to God that he might bring us to God in verse 18, right? So it's the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. There's a purpose for Christ's suffering. There's a purpose for our suffering. There's a purpose for Christ's suffering that he might bring us to God. All of us are born into this world alienated from God. Hear me today. If there's never been a time in your life that you've come to trust Christ as your Savior, today you are separated from God. You are alienated from God. The Bible says that you have made yourself God's enemy. But Jesus Christ came. He lived a sinless life and he died a sacrificial death to reconcile us to God, to bring us to God. The only way that we can be brought to God is through Jesus Christ. That's what he said, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the only way. There's no other way. You can't be good enough. You can't be religious enough. You can't be baptized enough times. You can't do it. It's impossible. The only way to come to God is through the person of Jesus Christ. He has reconciled us to himself. That's the reason for his suffering. Paul, again, we saw verse 21 a moment ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I, I just quoted it quickly. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God would beseech you by us. We pray you, and Christ said, be reconciled to God. Isn't it wonderful that we can be reconciled to God? Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he has made a way that I can be brought to God, that I can come before a holy and a righteous God, a God in whom there is no darkness, in whom there is no sin, no variableness, no shadow of turning, but I can come into his presence because of what Christ has done for me. He's reconciled me to God. What a glorious truth.
Christ's suffering. Christ's suffering was once for all. It was substitutionary. It reconciles us to God. It was, it was real and very violent. Notice he says being put to death in the flesh. Jesus Christ, his death was not symbolic. It wasn't spiritual. It's not something that we can spiritualize away, but it was very real and it was very violent. Christ was put to death at the hands of the Romans. The Jews delivered him, but it was the Romans that carried it out. And when the Romans executed someone, they had three forms of execution. If you were a Roman citizen, they would behead you, a very, considered a very humane way to put someone to death because you died instantly. If you were a free man, you were put to death by being beaten. You were beaten to death. But if you were a slave, you were crucified. That's how they, that's how they killed my Savior. He suffered a very, the very basest form of capital punishment known to man. He was crucified on a cruel Roman cross. He was put to death in the flesh. He came in the form of a man. And being in the, found in the fashion of a man, he became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross, Paul said to the Philippians. Jesus Christ died a very real and a very violent death. He suffered. He suffered for you and I. But his suffering, and here's the point. Here's the point of the whole text. Don't miss the point of the text. He suffered to lead to victory. His suffering leads to victory. Notice the last, the last phrase of the verse. We've seen all of them. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Christ suffered, he died, but on the third day, he came out of that grave. He came forth from the grave, and he came forth from the grave victorious over death, over hell, and over the grave. He came out in victory. His suffering led to victory. And that's a wonderful reality for us today. It's a wonderful truth it's a truth that we can live in. He is our example. That's why Peter is writing this. He's an example for you and I to know that when we suffer for righteousness' sake, suffering leads to victory. Hebrews chapter 2. A lot of this is in Hebrews because Hebrews, the, the theme of Hebrews is the, the superiority of Jesus Christ. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood... He also himself likewise took part of the same. Now what he's saying is, because we're all flesh and blood, because we're all human beings, Jesus Christ came as a human being. He came and took part of the same, flesh and blood. He also himself took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath power of death. That is the devil. So he came... As a man, he died that sacrificial death. Why? So that he could have power over death, so that he could destroy the devil and deliver them, verse 15, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He came and he suffered and he won the victory to set you and I free, to, to give us that victory. And what we must recognize is this. Jesus Christ suffered. We also will suffer. Jesus Christ rose again. We will rise again. Jesus Christ's suffering led to victory. Our suffering will lead to victory. So when we find ourselves in the midst of suffering, for righteousness' sake, we can rejoice 
knowing this suffering is going to lead to victory. And we can believe that. We just sang about it. That's the power of God. That's Again, if you go to the book of Philippians, that's what Paul says to the Philippians, right? I, I'm okay to go through this suffering. I'm, I'm okay to, to go through the, the pains and the difficulties and the struggles because it's through that that I understand the fellowship. I, I'm, I'm fine with the fellowship of the sufferings so that I can know the power of the resurrection. That's what I'm trying to say, but having a difficult time. I don't mind the fellowship of the sufferings because it leads to the power of the resurrection. So Peter makes the point. Don't miss the point. Because the next little bit is a little tough. Verse 19 says, this is a difficult passage, but which also he went and preached unto the saints in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Now, that's a tough passage of Scripture. There's a lot of confusion about that passage of Scripture. And if you went and read ten commentaries today, you'd probably get ten different opinions. Don't go read commentaries. That's the moral of the story. Read the Bible. So we're just going to ask some questions. We're going to do what that reporter should have done at the Dayton newspaper. We're going we're gonna to examine the text and see what, what, what is said here. And, and, and just some investigative questions. So, so let me just, just give you six questions that we should ask about this passage of Scripture. So it, it's a little tough, but let's see what we can learn. Who preached? Answer me. All right, do I need to read it again? Thank you. Somebody said it. Christ preached. Okay, so you see how this is going to work now, right? It's Participation Sunday. All right, so you're going to join me. We're going to participate. Who preached? All right, we'll go. Now, what form did he preach in? That's a little tougher question. By which also he went, if you back up to verse number 18, but quickened by the Spirit, colon, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. So what form? Was he in a physical form or a spiritual form? Spiritual. Right. He, he went and preached in the Spirit, right? So when did he preach? When, when would he have gone and preached this message to these, to these prisoners, these spirits in prison, which were sometimes disobedient. When would he have done that? Thank you. After the crucifixion and before the resurrection, right? There were three days and three nights. So somewhere in that period of time, he goes and he preaches. Now, to whom did he preach? You got it. You said it. The spirits in prison, right? It, it says what it means, and it means what it says. Now, there's some, there's some misunderstanding. There's some questions that come in. Okay, well, who, who is that? A lot of people would say, well, well that was just actually, he was, he, it was the Spirit of Christ in Noah when he preached for 120 years. Because note what he says. He goes on and says, which, were, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering God waited in the days of Noah. So some would say, well, that's, that's, that's the Spirit of Christ in Noah preaching back before the flood. That's not what it says. So it's the spirits in prison. 2 Peter chapter 2, it'll be on the screen. 
Peter writes about it in his second letter. He says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And so Peter speaks of it again, and he talks about angels that sinned, that were cast down to hell, that were delivered into chains of darkness. So these spirits that are in prison are these angelic beings, these sons of God, who sinned during the days of Noah before the flood. Jude talks about the same thing. Again, it'll be on the screen. And the angels, again, using that same term, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved into everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, so he, he, again, he's referencing these angels that kept not their first estate. They left their habitation and that they are reserved in chains under darkness. They're, they're prisoners. They're held. Notice that, that he says the issue is they were even as in like manner of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's fornication that he's talking about, which is a broad term of sexual sin. But this is a special kind of sexual sin because he says they, they, they left the normal order. There's this perversion going on. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 6. And I'm I'm just walking through this quick because it's all very interesting, but don't get sidetracked here because all of this is just to understand the point of the passage. Genesis 6, he says, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, so God's not happy with this. These sons of God and daughters of men. Angels, sons of God, spirit beings cohabitating with human beings. That's what he's talking about. You might say, well, that's just far-fetched. Well, yeah, it is. Don't get hung up here, though, all right? Hey, you're all looking at me like I'm crazy. Yeah. Uh, I, I just got to say it. But it's kind of interesting to me that that's being normalized today. Right? Through entertainment. We got all the superheroes. You know, back a few years ago, we had the whole vampire thing, cohabitating with, hmm. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Sorry, that was just a commercial break. I said, don't get caught up there. You did it. You made me. Where were we? Verse 3, Genesis 6, 3. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with men. For he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants in the land in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bare children to them. And they became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. And, and all of that's very interesting. But what you should recognize is, is just the point of what's happening here. And, and, and there's something that took place at that point before the flood that was so vile that God said, I'm going to wipe out all of humanity. God said, I'm, I'm sick. I, he, he says, I wish I hadn't even created man. I'm going to wipe all of humanity out. Now, again, there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but don't get sidetracked. We, we just need to understand what's taking place so that we can get the point. And the point is, Jesus Christ... Is victorious. 
He is our victory. And so read it again in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. We're going to get this, right? By which the Spirit, so Jesus in, in spirit form, after the crucifixion, before the resurrection, went and preached unto the saints in prison. These saints were sometime disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. And so we just saw from from. Second Peter and Jude and, and Genesis, he's, these spirits that he goes and he, he preaches to are these angelic beings in the days of Noah who cohabitated with, with humans, and God said, that, that angers me, and so I'm going to take you, and I'm going to put you in prison, I'm going to put you in chains, and I'm going to hold you there until the judgment. Well, after the crucifixion of Christ on the cross, what the Bible tells us is, he goes and he preaches to them. Where did he preach? In prison. Somebody said it. Thank you. He preached to them in prison. Peter says they were put in hell. Hell has multiple compartments. We know from Luke 16, right? The rich man lifts up his eyes in torment and, 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 and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. And so we know there's multiple compartments there. But in general term, this place called hell, that's where they're at. And Christ goes there and he preaches to them. Now the question is, what did he preach? Was he preaching the gospel? Unlikely. Because we're talking about angels, sons of God, who have already faced their judgment. They are held in hell. This is not a second chance for fallen angels. So sometimes, and many times, the word preached in the Bible references the gospel. But, but it also is, is simply just a proclamation. It's a proclamation of truth. And so Jesus goes, and he is proclaiming to these these fallen angels, these spirit beings, he's proclaiming to them victory. When he was on the cross, before he left this planet, he said, Teresa prayed it this morning, it is finished. And this is, that's exactly what he's doing before these spirit beings in prison. He went and he proclaimed to them, it is finished. The victory has been won. The price has been paid. It is over. Christ has won the victory. He is victorious. It has been paid for on the cross. Satan is defeated. His angels are defeated. Christ has won the victory. All of that is said simply to communicate what Peter wants to communicate to us. Christ suffered on the cross, but that suffering led to victory. And his point is for you and I to see that the same will be true in our lives. There's times that we're all going to suffer, but that suffering ultimately leads to victory. Now you might say, well, okay, what does that have to do with me? Well, notice verse 20, we've got to move quickly, which sometime we're disobedient when the offering uh, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, wherein the ark was appearing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The, the whole point is our victory is in Christ. And the ark, the ark that Noah built is the type of that victory. Noah, for 120 years, preached righteousness. For 120 years, while the ark was a preparing, 
Noah is preaching the righteousness of God. It goes all the way back to his great-great-grandfather Enoch, right? Genesis chapter 5. You ever read Genesis 5? Here's how it goes. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And he was not for God took him. But before he took him, here's what, here's what God said to Enoch. You're going to have a boy, and that boy, we're going to name him Methuselah. And what his name means is when he is gone, judgment comes. When Methuselah's life is over, judgment is coming. And Enoch so believed that message for 300 years, he walked with God. He was 65 years old when Methuselah was born. He died at 365 years old. For 300 years, he walked with God. And he so walked with God that he so influenced his great-great-grandchild, Noah, to believe God for the impossible. It had never rained on the earth. I mean, you think, you know, when, when Noah's out preaching a worldwide flood, you think, well, that's pretty outlandish, Noah. It's really outlandish when it's never rained. But Noah's for 120 years preaching. It's going to rain, people. Judgment's coming. Mm, I don't have time for this, but let me just say to you, you know, there is no anti-type in the Bible for Enoch, but you and I. We are the only anti-type for Enoch because we're going to go in the rapture of the church. We ought to be like Enoch, preaching, proclaiming that judgment is coming. God set a time for that too, and I don't have time to go into that this morning. But I'll tell you this, I believe it's close. Let's get back to this. Noah preached. He warned the world that God was going to destroy the world by water. No one listened. Can you imagine the scorn that Noah received? Can you imagine what people said about Noah? Noah, you are such a fool. Why would you give your life to that? There are so many other things to pursue. Why would you pursue building this stupid big boat and gathering together the animals? What, are you, what is this message? What are you living for, Noah? Noah, you're wasting your life. Noah just stayed true. He just stayed faithful. Nobody listened to him. Nobody got on the boat but his family. And Peter's talking to people who are living in the minority. They're living in a place where, where nobody is listening and, and they're facing suffering and it seems as if they're giving their lives for something that, that will never come to fruition. And he gives this example of Noah who for 120 years preached the judgment of God, and nobody listened. Nobody got in the boat. The religious leaders thought he was crazy. Society thought he was crazy. But Noah believed. And what the Bible says is he was saved by water. Not the substance water. He wasn't saved by the substance of water. That's the judgment through which God brought him safely. The judgment was water. And God brought him through the water safely in the ark. The ark is a, a beautiful type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you and I can get excited about the coming of Christ because we know the glory that shall be revealed in Christ. But that glory to us is judgment to the world. The same glory that we will see will be judgment to the world. The same water that lifted the ark is the water that destroyed the world. That's the point that he's making. What he wants us to understand is Jesus, he goes in. Notice verse 21, the like figure wherein even baptism doth also now save us. 
Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answering of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Christ. What the verse is not saying is that you're saved by going through these baptismal waters. That's not what he's saying. That is not the point that he's making. Baptism doesn't save you. If if that was the case, then, then we'd be saved by water, not by Christ. Christ's death would be in vain. He's not saying it's, it's, it's faith plus baptism. There's 150 verses in the New Testament that say salvation is by faith alone. He's saying that it's an answer of a good conscience toward God. When I walk through the waters of baptism, when I submit to that what seems to be a curious act, it seems to be a silly thing. When I submit to that, just like Jesus went into that prison and he proclaimed victory. He's saying it's the same thing for you and I. When I take that physical act of baptism, what I'm saying is I'm proclaiming it is finished. I have entered into the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith. I am dead to who I was before. That old man is buried, and I am risen again to new life in Christ. I claim that my life is lived under the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's simply what he's saying. Regardless of my circumstances or my situation, regardless of what the things around me look like, I have victory in Christ. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks of me. It doesn't matter the world's opinion of me. It doesn't matter who thinks I'm crazy. I'm victorious in Christ. He has won the victory. Verse 22 says, who has gone into heaven, speaking of Jesus, and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. You see, Jesus Christ, he won the victory. He is our victory. When I trusted him as my Savior, I entered into that victory. I I became part of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The baptism that I went through in the water was just a a graphic depiction. It was a public proclamation. It was to say to all the world, this is what happened to me when I trusted Christ as my Savior. I died to my old self. I'm alive in Christ. And now I'm going to live for his glory. The Bible tells us that Christ is seated on the right hand of God the Father. I don't have time for this this morning, but just just know that, that, that that's a position of power and authority. Christ sits on the right hand, the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, Matthew 26, 64 says. It's a position of honor, Acts 2, 33, by the right hand of God exalted. That's where Christ is. It's a place of intercession. He's even at the right hand of God and maketh intercession for us right now. Jesus Christ is sitting on the right hand of God the Father, and he's interceding on our behalf. Brittany offered to you this morning to come by the prayer station and and be prayed for. You can go by there and be prayed for today. And you know what you can know for sure? Jesus Christ is on the right hand of God the Father. And he hears that prayer and he's interceding on our behalf to God the Father. He is the mediator between God and man. It's the place of preeminence. Ephesians chapter 1, set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Christ sits on the right hand. He sits in the place of preeminence. He sits in the place of rest. We saw it a moment ago. He sat down on the right hand. It is finished. It's the place of dominion. Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies 
thy footstool. Jesus Christ is over all. He's the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. Listen to me. When he went into that prison and he proclaimed it to those fallen angels, they knew it. They knew that he was victorious. They knew that he was King of kings, Lord of lords. He knows it. It's about time we figured it out. It's about time we figured it out to the extent that we started living that way. That we get full of faith and believe that we have victory in Jesus Christ. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what it looks like. I know that the world is a mess and it's running amok. It doesn't matter. My God is in control. And he is orchestrating the events of history to accomplish his plans and his purposes. And his will will be done. He will fulfill it. And the best thing I can do is align myself with him. It's a difficult text this morning, but don't miss the point. We suffer, but when we suffer for righteousness' sake, it always leads to victory. It leads to victory because of what Christ has done for us. We are not just conquerors, Paul said in Romans. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Let me ask you today. Do you know him? Not about him. Do you know him personally, intimately? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Has there ever been a time in your life when you realized that your sin had separated you from a righteous God and you needed to be reconciled? If you've never done that, that's where it has to start. Just an acknowledgement of your own sin and your own need of reconciliation. If you've never done that, today would be a great day to do that. If you have done that, let me just ask you, have you followed him in baptism? Have you made a public proclamation of that victory? If not, you ought to do that. It doesn't merit salvation, but it's a powerful proclamation. It is the first step of obedience. You'll never take subsequent steps until you take the first step. Maybe today you're living in the midst of suffering. You're going through struggles and difficulties. I encourage you today, if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, know that victory is on the other end. If you're suffering because of sin, then repent. Get right with God and live for Him. Are you living in victory over your flesh? Or does your flesh dominate you? Does your flesh control you? Do you, do you just do what your flesh wants to do or do you say no? You give in to the lust of the flesh that war against your soul. It's all kinds of things, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my time for myself. I'm, I'm hung up in social media. I can't get out of social media. I, I'm, I'm going to eat whatever I want to eat. I'm going to drink whatever I want to drink. That's, those are the lusts of the flesh. I'm going to look at what I want to look at. Do you have victory today? It's available in Christ, amen? Over the flesh. Let's get real. Let's don't keep this theoretical. Let's get real. Do you have victory over the world? Or do you live for this world's standards? Do you live for what you can get? Do you live for the, who you can be? What name of notoriety you can achieve? Do you live with victory over the world? I don't have to please this world system. You got victory over the devil? 
Or is he lying to you and telling you? He's the accuser of the brethren. Is he telling you today you could never be who God made you to be? You could never, your past is too much to overcome. You can't live for Christ. Is he telling you that? That's a lie of the devil. Jesus Christ won victory over that. Now you appropriate that victory in your life. Do you have victory today? It's available. It's available through Christ. Will you be willing to accept it? Father, we need you today. We love you. We're grateful today for your word. We're thankful that it's true. We're thankful that even in passages like this, that sometimes are a little hard to understand at the, with a cursory observation, but, but with just a few minutes of, of study and, and with the power of your Holy Spirit that lives within us, you teach us your truth and, and you give us powerful insights. We're so grateful today for the victory that's in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, that you not only have won that victory, but you've, you've allowed us to become part of that, to become partakers in the victory that you have won through your son, Jesus Christ. Now, I ask you today, Father, there's people in this room who don't have victory over their own sin. They're still alienated from you, separated from you. They're still your enemy. God, I pray today would be the day they would come to know your son as their savior, that they would be reconciled by the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. You paid the price. May they accept that today. Father, there's others here today that, that are struggling to live in victory over the flesh. Our flesh so easily dominates us. God, I pray today people would receive the victory, that they would believe you and believe your word and go out full of faith, trusting you over the, the world and over the devil, that they wouldn't believe his accusations against them, but today they would believe your truth over the lie of the enemy, that they could live in this victory that you have purchased for them on Calvary's cross. Help us today, I pray.